On behalf of Chats, I'd like to welcome you to the November 2013 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for a terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Shelley McGill from the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. She'll be discussing the executive summary of a report from the CDC and Prevention Ventilator Associated Pneumonia Surveillance Definition Working Group. It's entitled, Developing a New National Approach to Surveillance for Ventilator Associated Events. Dr. McGill, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Also joining us today is Dr. Craig Lilly, Professor of Medicine, Anesthesiology, and Surgery at the, and from the Clinical and Population Health Research Program from the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts. He will be discussing his accompanying editorial, Quality Measures for Critically Ill Patients, Where Does Ventilator-Associated Condition Fit In? Dr. Lilly, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Carl, for inviting me. Absolutely. Okay, let's get started. Um, Shelley, why don't you start from the very beginning. Why was the VAP Surveillance Definition Working Group started in 2011? What, what was it tasked to do? Sure. So we, as you know, have been doing um, surveillance for healthcare-associated infections at the CDC for many years, um, initially through the National Nosocomial Infection Surveillance System, and then uh, in the mid-2000s, um, switching over to the National Healthcare Safety Network. And one of the events for which surveillance can be done in NHSN, or um, up until this past year could be done, was ventilator-associated pneumonia, using surveillance definitions that were originally put into place in 2002, which was a very different time in terms of the purposes for which HAI surveillance was being done. And those definitions, although initially uh, were uh, positively received by the infection control community, were really limited by their inclusion of a number of subjective criteria. Um, there were several different pathways uh, through which a VAP definition could be met and uh, many different signs and symptoms incorporated into those definitions, as well as chest X-ray evidence of pneumonia, um, all of which proved to be somewhat problematic in an era in which public reporting of HAI rates is, uh, has become more prevalent and in which HAIs are also becoming part of uh, mandates through state legislation and uh, federal reporting requirements as well. So with those concerns in mind, we actually started thinking about ways to modify VAP surveillance, and this effort really began back in 2009. And part of that process was seeking input from critical care and other experts in terms of what would make sense for modifying the definitions. We realized we needed a more uh, concentrated, concerted effort in that regard, and that was really the impetus for contacting a number of critical care organizations and other stakeholder organizations and asking them to uh, nominate representatives that would be part of a working group that we could work closely with to come up with uh, what would be um, a best new approach to surveillance for VAP or, in this case, ventilator-associated events. So that's kind of how things evolved. I saw your, the list of, of, of included people. It's definitely a very large tent. Yes, yeah. We, we wanted to have broad representation, and as you can see, uh, we did have involvement from the four societies within the Critical Care Societies Collaborative, as well as Infection Prevention and Healthcare Epidemiology and Infectious Diseases Society and the American Association for Respiratory Care, uh, in addition to some other partners. So it was a, a large group of people with a lot of different expertise to bring to the table, which was really invaluable in moving this effort forward. So if I wanted to, if I was paraphrasing, you can tell me if this is correct. You know, the, the prior definitions of, that we were using from VAP for a 
surveillance perspective, um, had some, is the right word, burdens in regards to proof or even that the data could be potentially manipulated? And given that there is, you know, ramifications of how you report your hospital-acquired infections, you know, as an institution, um, it was a, there was a concern that the we were getting underrepresented data. Is that where some of the, what prompted some of this? Or yeah, I, so those are those are definitely all concerns. Um, certainly, we heard repeatedly from users that the pneumonia surveillance definitions or the VAP definitions were among the most burdensome to use um, out in the hospitals doing surveillance because of their complexity. Um, we also had concerns about the variability in case finding. We um, heard from uh, many users that they might take different approaches to applying the surveillance definitions. In some cases, facilities might choose to start with microbiology data, and others they might start with the, the radiographic information. So there are lots of different ways that this is being done, and I think the result is that, um, you know, places were detecting different numbers of events based not so much on the actual true number of apps in their units or facilities, but based simply on some of the variability in how they were looking for cases. So that was definitely a concern, and, and particularly a concern in recent years when, you know, there's so much attention to a reliability of these definitions and the ability of anyone who's using them to apply definitions and methods in a standard way, um, the same as they would be doing in another facility doing the same surveillance. Okay. Well, then, can you then introduce our listeners then to what um, you described as a more general objective measurement of conditions um, uh, associated with mechanical ventilation and this kind of moving through? And I know uh, Craig's going to have some uh, comments to add ultimately in there. Um, so we kind of went through, you know, what the group was tasked to do and why and, and what was the backdrop. So then tell us a little bit more about you know, the conclusions you guys came to. Sure. Well, as you know, we met in person um, back in 2011 and had a lot of great discussion during that meeting about um, what we knew so far, what literature was available about more streamlined definitions, a lot of back and forth about what appropriate criteria might look like, and then uh, came away from that meeting with, with a working version of a definition that then was refined on a series of conference calls in the months following that in-person meeting. And so what was implemented was the uh, definition algorithm that the working group um, finalized and finally agreed upon, um, and that's the definition that was implemented or the, the series of definitions implemented in January of 2013. This is this ventilator-associated events approach. And what that does is really focus on objective criteria that can be obtained from any mechanically ventilated patient, so not dependent on uh, specialized testing or special resources that might be available in some facilities but not others. And the, the foundational or fundamental tier of that definition is what we call ventilator-associated conditions. And these are events that are identified by detecting a period of worsening oxygenation after a period of stability or improvement on the ventilator. And that's determined by looking at changes in the positive and expiratory pressure, the minimum daily value of PEEP, or the minimum daily value of the fraction of inspired oxygen. So that really defines a ventilator-associated condition. And I do want to point out that the working group recognized that this definition would detect a variety of conditions or complications, some of which may not be preventable. And for that reason, they opted to refer to those events as conditions rather than complications. The second tier of the, the definition algorithm builds on that first tier. 
So patients who've met the VAC definition who then also have an abnormal temperature or white count, which are explicitly defined within that um, IVAC definition, and who also are started on a new antimicrobial agent and continued on that agent are determined to have an IVAC, an infection-related ventilator-associated complication. The third and final tier of the definition algorithm goes a step further in that patients who have met the VAC and the IVAC definitions who then also have some microbiological or laboratory evidence of respiratory infection would be defined as having either a possible VAP or a probable VAP. And I do want to say that in uh, coming up with these definitions, the working group was very much aware of the possibility that definitions could be used in the future for public reporting, uh, required reporting, and so really focused for those initial two tiers on using objective, readily available data elements. And so when we think about definitions or rates that could be appropriate for those purposes should they come to pass in the future. What we're talking about there is this overall VAE rate, which is the rate of all events meeting at least that VAC definition, and then what we refer to as the IVAC plus rate, which is the rate of all events meeting at least that IVAC definition, because those are the tiers that were developed with this focus on readily available objective information. When we get to the VAP tiers, you know, we, we wanted to have definitions that would incorporate that microbiological evidence that um, certainly is important to us clinically at the bedside. But we recognize, too, that the uh, patterns with which providers might obtain respiratory specimens for culture or other testing, um, what determines whether a provider orders that test, how the specimen is collected, and then how the laboratory processes and reports the results of that specimen testing, those things vary widely from place to place, facility to facility. So we didn't feel that that was really appropriate for use in a public reporting type scheme or in a situation where there's required reporting. So for that reason, that third tier is really designed for internal use within a facility. Craig, what do you think? Well, we uh, really uh, laud the efforts uh, of our colleagues in Atlanta to, uh, to advance this area because we truly believe that uh, there are patients that are um, suffering infections from mechanical ventilations that are preventable. And we think that primarily from the patient safety literature that shows, um, that's identified the processes that are required to, um, to, lower, the, to lower the rates. The um, approach that they've taken is really interesting, and one of the most um, important parts of, of Dr. McGill's um, publication is the dedication to watching out and seeing what happens when we actually apply these, uh, these definitions. And it's particularly important because they're quite unconventional. They're unconventional uh, in the sense that if you're trying to make a diagnosis, generally the approach is to, to, to elect the most sensitive and specific uh, criteria that you can use to identify that condition. And what's interesting about these definition is that definitions is that they don't contain any of those elements. In addition, it's unconventional because the focus isn't really on physiological or pathological uh, conditions present in the patient, the, the measurements are primarily of clinician behavior relative to how ventilator, uh, ventilator adjustments are made. So this raises you know, some very interesting um, questions about how this is really going to work in clinical practice. 
when we think about that and how is this, how does it, where does it fit in? How do we apply it? We need to look at, well, who gets screened and who doesn't get screened in terms of the new paradigm and the paradigm that we're moving away from, the old VAP uh, 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 definitions. And when we look at um, who gets screened with the new versus the old definitions, it, it depends on how long you're ventilated. To end up with a VAE, you have to be ventilated about four days. And that turns out only to screen about 21% of all of the patients because 80% are, um, are, um, are ventilated for less than that time and don't qualify for the don't qualify for the complications. For the older VAP, the requirement is, is about three days, and so it screens a larger fraction of the, of the population. So one of the things that we're very interested in is how, um, how many people will you know, score positively will be classified as having a ventilator-associated event or one of its subcategories, an IVAC or a possible or probable VAC, relative to how many people have what we would really think is a ventilator-associated pneumonia by more, um, more traditional uh, criteria. Well, Shelley, what do you think? So, um, so thanks, Dr. Lee. I think those are all um, excellent points and, and things that certainly the working group has grappled with in a number of our conversations. Um, we do, I, I wanted to speak to the, the issue of um, improvement, and we do regard and recognize this, um, this new approach as a new approach. This is definitely a departure from um, the, the sorts of um, surveillance definitions that we've been using traditionally. And, and we recognize that, and there, there are challenges certainly that come with that. So I think um, we have been very grateful for the ongoing involvement of our working group colleagues. Um, I think as is mentioned in uh, Dr. Lilly's editorial, um, we have already made a, a change to the algorithm based on feedback that we received from users in the first few months of surveillance. So we do really value that feedback, and it is incredibly helpful for us to be able to take that feedback and go back to the working group and have discussions about what the best approach is to address the concerns that we're hearing from users. So that's critically important. We fully expect that that will continue. This is a learning period for all of us, and um, it's a time when I think there's a great opportunity to make even additional improvements to to this approach that, that has been implemented. So that's the first point that I wanted to, to make. And then there's a couple of other points that I think are worth emphasizing. One is that, um, you know, these are surveillance definitions, and so we do hope that they align most of the time with what is clinically going on with the patient. So we want to be detecting events for surveillance purposes that also represent significant clinical events. That, that is ultimately the goal. Um, but we know that they're not perfect, and surveillance definitions, um, there are certain considerations and limitations just because, again, you have to take the practical considerations into account. So the best diagnostic criteria that um, folks might be using at the bedside um, are not always things that can be applied in all facilities um, in the same way. And so they don't necessarily always lend themselves to inclusion in a surveillance definition, especially when there's the potential for those, um, that surveillance to be used in, in comparing facilities to one another. So that's an important consideration. And we have tried to emphasize that these really are surveillance definitions. We don't, um, 
in any way intend for the definitions to be used in um, managing patients clinically, individual patients at the bedside. They are surveillance definitions. And so that's something we've really tried to, to point out to folks. And then um, to address the last issue of um, duration of mechanical ventilation, when we set out with a working group to talk about criteria, one of the things that, um, that was on the table for discussion and something we'd heard repeatedly about from users with the old definitions was that with the old definitions, there was actually no required duration of mechanical ventilation that a patient had to have received to be eligible for VAP. So the onset of that VAP event had to occur at the time the patient was mechanically ventilated or at a time during the 48 hours prior when the patient had been mechanically ventilated. And so um, it didn't, there was actually no criterion specifying the patient had to been on the vent for at least two days or at least three days. So that was something we were anxious to tackle with a new approach to make sure that the surveillance definitions um, aligned a little bit closer with what uh, the clinical community would consider a ventilator-associated event. So for that reason, we do have this requirement that the patient had these two days of stability or improvement on the ventilator prior to the onset of worsening. So when we think about the earliest that a VAE onset could occur in terms of the surveillance definitions, it's, it's day three of mechanical ventilation. So again, trying to approximate um, what uh, typically would be considered a ventilator-associated occurrence from a clinical standpoint. Um, that being said, you know, again, we're very open to feedback, and we've really appreciated all of the feedback that we've gotten and um, hope to continue to consider with the working group some of these challenging situations that folks are finding as they're using these um, out in their facilities. Craig, what do you think? One of the things that, that's uh, fascinating is that the Canadian Clinical Trials Group has been has picked up on this. So there have been a number of um, studies that are looking at really how to reduce the incidence of where the mechanical ventilator is causing morbidity and mortality by causing an infection in the, a lower respiratory uh, infection. So the the availability of large data sets of folks that have been clinical have been judged to meet the clinical definition of having a ventilator associated pneumonia or not and then looking back with the with the criteria uh, various forms of the criteria to determine whether they have a ventilator associated event a ventilator associated condition a an IVAC or a possible or probable VAC has allowed us to sort of um, see how well these definitions work to identify people who um, seem to meet the traditional VAP surveillance uh, definition. Also, you could do sort of the clinical definition or the clinical diagnosis of VAP, but the, most of the current effort has gone into trying to determine for um, how well does do the ventilator-associated conditions detect people who would meet the former, uh, the older definition for ventilator-associated pneumonia, the surveillance definition, as, as Shelley correctly puts it. And what the Canadian uh, Clinical Trials Group has found, and this information is available in the uh, online first section of uh, CHEST, uh, uh, is that only about 21% of folks that meet the ventilator-associated pneumonia condition meet are detected by the VAC uh, diagnosis, and only about 17% are, are detected by the IVAC uh, definition. And those kinds of global numbers are very close, 
not exactly the same, but they're very close to what we've seen in our, our in our own experience. And so, when you say that the patient is going to be reported as having an infection-related ventilator-associated condition, only about 21% or one out of five patients that would con- conventionally have been picked up as having a VAP are actually identified by this system. So what's interesting is that this, the a way in which the um, Op, the the definitions seem to have been oper, seem to operationalize is that they miss most of the patients that have a ventilator associated pneumonia, and that's potentially a problem because we know how to reduce the rates of ventilator associated pneumonia, what processes we need to uh, focus on, and missing them and not reporting them and not working to reduce those rates is potentially is a potential problem and one that I'd be interested in having Shelley. Uh, you know, comment on. Sure. Thanks, Craig. I mean, these are all really important questions, and I think that um, I am certainly very pleased to see that there is an increasing amount of uh, work being done to explore these new definitions. Certainly, there are knowledge gaps that are very, very important to fill during this period that we um, that we have as a, a learning period, if you will. So, um, so I think it's great that that work is being done. I think it's really going to go a long way toward helping us understand, in particular, the IVAC tier and the possible and probable VAP tiers in terms of the clinical correlates of the those events because those are newer concepts as compared to the VAC definition, which is something that there is a body of literature about at this point. Um, Just to comment on the um, lack of agreement, if you will, um, between a a traditional VAP definition such as the old NHSN VAP surveillance definition and the new definitions, that has also been our experience. Um, We have done Uh, some work in that regard as well in the period leading up to implementation of VAE. And um, I think that, you know, that is now an observation that that, um, uh, at least a couple of groups have made that that Venn diagram, um, you know, there there is uh, sort of some slim overlap, but there there's also a lot of difference there. And I think that has to do with um, some of the, the criteria within VAC requiring that period of worsening oxygenation. When you look at the old um, VAP definitions, and um, note that, you know, that definition, a similar definition to that was actually used in that uh, Canadian Critical uh, Care Trials Group study, but not, not precisely that. Um, those old definitions included as one of their clinical signs and symptoms worsening oxygenation, but there was no um, specification in terms of how that was to be assessed or when relative to other signs or symptoms that would pop up. So, so I think that is, um, that is a big difference between the two approaches because, um, you know, certainly there are events that would meet a more traditional VAP surveillance definition that um, could be based on things like cough or change in the character of sputum or uh, endotracheal secretion production that wouldn't necessarily include a more objectively defined period of worsening oxygenation. So I think that's one point to make. And then um, the other point is that um, for some of the other tiers, of course, we are requiring that, um, antimicro- that new antimicrobial therapy, and that's another major difference. So I don't know that it's too surprising that there is not, um, not a greater amount of overlap. I think that, um, you know, we do understand that uh, a VAC, for example, does not equal a VAP um, as defined by the old surveillance definitions. I would also point out, too, though, that, um, you know, we, we're not great at um, defining VAP. The, the signs and symptoms and tests that we have available to us now 
um, are, are not particularly sensitive or specific. So I think we're kind of limited by the science right now in terms of our ability to accurately identify VAPs, um, whether it's for surveillance purposes or for clinical research purposes. So um, there is some literature looking at the clinical correlates of events detected by the old VAP definition compared to a, a newer VAC definition. And you can see that for both, even though one is called VAP, there's actually a spectrum of things that are identified. And those could be things like ARDS or pulmonary edema, some of it's VAP, um, but there are other things in the mix there too. And that, that's true whether you're talking about uh, patients meeting an old VAP definition or the VAC definition. So, um, so I think it's definitely uh, a subject of interest and, and glad to know there's further exploration going on there. Um, but I think that, you know, we just have to recognize that the criteria that are being used are a little bit different. That probably explains why we're capturing different groups of patients in some cases. It, it, it's not surprising given the fact that the most sensitive um, index, indices we have for VAP aren't included in the definition, that there would be some d divergence in that, in that direction, that the VAC might miss some of the folks with that. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's interesting about the Venn diagram that you mentioned, of course, is that there's a whole boatload of patients um, with VAC that don't seem to have VAP. Mm -hmm. And so right. what's going on with those patients? We've been very interested in trying to figure out um, whether those folks are uh, the sort of folks that should be equitably publicly reported. And so what's interesting about that group is that a lot of those patients uh, seem to have um, meet the, de the Berlin definition of ARDS. And a lot of those patients seem to meet uh, standard um, you know, accepted criteria for sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. And when we look at those patients and we say, were those patients treated um, as in, in the best possible way that we can with best possible early treatments, antibiotics, appropriate volume resuscitation, we find many patients who possibly as a, as a, as a consequence of getting appropriate early resuscitation end up being uh, classified as having a ventilator-associated condition, particularly when the ventilator um, settings are initially set at maximal levels, they're weaned very slowly, and then on the third or fourth day when the patient hasn't responded to very appropriate treatment for their, uh, for their severe sepsis or their septic shock, they start to accumulate fluid and have deterioration of their gas exchange parameters and the clinicians then uh, turn the ventilator uh, settings up and they're detected as having a VAC. So one of the things we're very concerned about is that if really appropriately treated patients are publicly reported as having some sort of a complication or some sort of a uh, you know, bad outcome or adverse event, that that would be highly inequitable and might even have the unintended consequence of having patients not being adequately resuscitated if they were then going to be counted as a VAC later. Sure. I think those are great points and important observations. And I think that, um, you know, just a couple of comments about that VAC tier. Um, it is true that a number of different things will be captured by those criteria, and uh, many of them probably will not be VAP. And the working group recognized that, you know, we don't really understand right now um, the extent to which all of those events may be preventable. That's probably the biggest knowledge gap we have, and I, I know that, um, you know, we hope that there will be data to, 
to show um, or help us with that question in the future. Um, but for that reason, it, that tier is called condition as opposed to complication. And um, so there will be instances where events are detected that, you know, arguably are not um, complications of care. And we do need to learn more about those. So the kind of work that you're doing to help sort that out is incredibly valuable, and, and that's the kind of information that we need to have. So, um, so that's the first thing I wanted to, to comment on regarding that. Um, I think you, you also mentioned, you know, not including some of the more sensitive criteria or things that would be routinely used at the bedside to diagnose FAP and um, chest radiograph, you know, I think is one of those things. And certainly, um, you know, we don't have that within the VAE algorithm. It's interesting because we did um, seek feedback from users when we started this process of making the modifications. and. Um, we asked about the, the various criteria that were in the old VAP surveillance definitions and what people used and what they felt was helpful and not. And um, chest X-ray was definitely one of those things that um, people felt was, was really important and really helpful. On the other hand, um, we heard over and over and over again that it was incredibly challenging within a surveillance definition to have that as a criterion. And that's because, um, you know, obviously just as with microbiological testing, people order chest imaging for different reasons at different times in different units and different facilities. And then there's a lot of variability in terms of how those films are interpreted and how those results are reported. And the folks that are typically doing the surveillance for these events in hospitals, infection preventionists, don't have the training, the expertise to be able to assess those radiographs. And I think, you know, one thing that we were finding, um, kind of getting to that issue of manipulation of definitions, is that um, that was an area where it was pretty easy for people to, um, to manipulate or potentially game the definitions um, based on just how strictly they might have interpreted the chest x-rays or the, the reports of those results. And so we really felt, you know, much as we recognized the clinical importance of that testing to diagnosis at the bedside um, and management, for a surveillance definition, it just wasn't well suited. So it may be at some point in the future um, as additional science emerges, there may be other things that we can incorporate that will enhance the accuracy of, de of these definitions for identifying or honing in on VAP. But we felt like right now um, the best place to be was really being straightforward about our limitations in that regard and focusing on the objectivity and reliability. Hey, Shell, I'm glad you brought up the issue of gaming because we're very concerned about that. Sure. Uh, one of the things that having access to a large data set allowed us to do is to build some uh, models that would, um, you know, that would um, look at changes in and algorithmic changes in clinician behavior that would be uh, not perceived as being dangerous for the patient, potentially clinically acceptable, to sort of weigh the gaming of reading the chest x-rays against the gaming of the behavior, which is the primary thing that you're measuring with the VAE um, surveillance program. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because when we put in a, a, you know, a simple change, uh, daily change, and every other daily change in the uh, ventilator um, management protocols, it could be done by respiratory therapists and encoded into, uh, you know, um, ICU admission, the computerized physician order uh, entry um, revolution that's currently going on. We found that you could eliminate 93% of VACs by just um, 
manipulating the ventilator settings so that they wouldn't make the two days of stability criteria. So we're quite concerned that these definitions are very easily gamed and and may uh, lead to rates that are um, dependent more on local factors than on uh, changes in the pay, more on local um, respiratory therapy algorithms than they are in terms of any actual pathology in the patients. What kind of um, what kind of diligence did the committee do looking at other gaming uh, strategies, and how concerned is the working group that gaming is something that's likely to come out of this? Sure. Well, I think it's um, it's it's impossible to prevent that entirely. Um, obviously, that is a concern. Um, we certainly hope that um, providers that are caring for these patients are um, focusing on you know the clinical care and the best management of the patient, and not spending that you know their valuable time and energy thinking about um, ways to avoid detection of a surveillance event, particularly in this period when these are new definitions and we're modifying them. You know, they're not, they're not stable yet, so to speak, because there probably will be additional changes that will occur. So I guess that's the first comment I'd like to make. I, I think that um, we did talk about this um, in the working group, and I think that, you know, there's wide recognition that um, gaming was likely happening with the old definitions. There's um, an interesting paper that Dr. Michael Klompas published in the American Journal of Infection Control in 2012 where he talks about um, several ways that hospitals could lower their VAP rates. That's using the old definitions without actually improving care. Um, and, and so there are several ways that that, that could happen based on, you know, whether um, folks were doing that kind of strict interpretation of signs, symptoms, and radiographs, if they were um, requiring BAL and quantitative cultures, um, even ways to manipulate the denominator of the rates by admitting lower-risk post-op patients to the units um, that would increase your your ventilator days. So um, I think, you know, it was widely recognized that that was a significant um, potential issue with the old definitions and that um, these these newer definitions offer some advantage there. But but certainly, as you say, um, it's, it's not possible to prevent that entirely. We just have to hope that Again, it's recognized that you know these are these definitions are not part of any federal uh, reporting programs at this point. Um, I think it's recognized that this is this is the rollout phase. This is initial implementation. Is that there are changes to come. And um, again, this is the kind of feedback that we'd love to hear from users so that we can think about the the best ways to to make additional modifications. And I wonder if the incentive to game is only going to get worse when obviously this your ranking as a medical center in various parameters um, is going to be public data and also be dependent on your reimbursement. Yeah. That's where some of this concern comes from. Sure, and I think that that's, um, I can certainly understand that. Um, You know, these these types of programs, um, you know, are, um, have been increasingly uh, in place over the last few years with um, state legislative reporting mandates as well as, as other programs. Um, and I think that um, obviously hospitals are going to be concerned. We we have felt um, with the working group that this particular approach, being more objective and um, and more reliable, would um, at least put facilities on a more even playing field, if you will. That we'd be more likely comparing apples to apples um, than apples to oranges, which I think has been a major concern. Um, you know, not only with the VAP definitions, but um, with other, you know, more complex 
uh, event definitions as well. So I think that, um, again, there's certainly room for improvement, but, but we feel like this is a better approach than what we've had to work with in the past. And we are committed to, to making it um, even better through feedback from, from users. Shelley, one of the things that uh, you that you had mentioned in in your primary article is that the costs of of the of the surveillance programs um, you know might be a lot less because a lot of this stuff could be um, electronically abstracted and done with at lower labor cost. And one of the things that's been interesting as we've gone out and tried to actually measure the costs is that the VACs uh, constitute a slightly different problem in that if you do have a VAC and you don't have a VAP, so it's not thought to be an infectious complication, then the primary team that's charged with going out and figuring out what's going on with that, because they're experts primarily in infections, really is not so well equipped to figure out what's going on with those cases. It turns out that about you know 79% of the people with VAC don't don't have an infectious complication. They have something else going on. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the costs, the, whether it's cheaper to surveil for, for VAP or it's cheaper to sit, uh, surveil for ventilator-associated events, depends really on kind of how much effort you're going to put into chasing those cases down and figuring out why their oxygenation got worse. And sure. so, uh, so have, uh, what, what do you think the opportunities are uh, for better understanding what the true surveillance costs of the alternative programs are? And are we really ready to sundown the VAP surveillance programs if we're, if we're missing, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, the majority of the people that have it? So is, is VAC, are the costs of VAC surveillance incremental to those of VAP? What's your, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so there's a couple of things there, um, and certainly, you know, this is another area where uh, we would really benefit from more work being done. I think that um, there is a goal to move surveillance in a direction where it can be automated so that events can be detected electronically and in some cases reported electronically. I think um, because of all the, the reasons we've discussed earlier, the surveillance burdens on infection control, infection preventionists, who are the folks largely responsible for this type of work, those have increased greatly and have taken time away from other really important activities, being on the wards, doing education, helping with prevention. So um, I think in addition to the benefits from a a reliability standpoint, um, assuming that electronic algorithms can be put in place accurately in facilities, you know, there is that benefit, too, in terms of um, freeing up time for frontline staff to spend on um, other activities that would be very valuable to improving patient care. So, um, so that's, that's one uh, comment to make. I think, um, you know, recognizing that the VA definitions do detect this broader spectrum of events, um, I think, you know, we've looked at that as an opportunity to think uh, more broadly about prevention as opposed to focusing um, just on those things that are more likely to be VAP. So there might be other opportunities there in terms of um, improving patient care through, um, through interventions that address the spectrum of uh, conditions or complications. And it is true. I think that, you know, one thing you said, which, which is really important to emphasize, is that um, the infection preventionists and infection control folks 
uh, you know, aren't going to have the expertise to tackle those other non-infection-related events. Um, those are going to be things that uh, is going to require collaborations and partnerships with respiratory care departments as well as with critical care. And as we've rolled out this new surveillance, we have tried to emphasize that um, those partnerships, although they probably exist and are very strong in a number of facilities, you know, if they're, if they're not there yet, this is an opportunity to, to enhance them. And um, that's important from a surveillance standpoint in terms of making sure that the surveillance can be done efficiently because, um, you know, as you probably know, um, for some infection preventionists, the ventilator information is, is not something they're very familiar with, and they, they will rely on the expertise of their colleagues to help with that. Um, so from a surveillance standpoint, there are benefits, but certainly as we learn more about prevention and VAE, you know, that's also going to be extremely important, those close relationships and, and partnerships. Well, I wonder if I could even see, you know, from a surveillance perspective, then translating right immediately to clinical use, using the data from VAC in real time to sort of raise the flag on morning rounds that we better take another look and make sure that our preventive measures are all in place because this is someone that is potentially boiling towards a VAP. Let's make sure that we're not missing something or that there's a better reason that this VAC is occurring that is something we can't you know, do anything about it's part of the disease, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Absolutely. I think these are opportunities to, to take a closer look and, and think about in a, in a broader way perhaps, you know, what, what prevention measures are in place or could be put in place. I mean, in our own medical center, we've come to the conclusion that the infection prevention arm is really one part of a larger team, a patient safety team, efficiency team, a overall care improvement team. And so that team has to have several different components that work really well together. One of the things that's, that, we, that we see as flawed with the former VAP surveillance is that the radiologists who have the expertise in terms of objectively reading the films are never really well incorporated into the surveillance program. Right. So we really think that the, um, the, the next generation of, um, of expertise that's going to reduce the morbidity mortality comes from across cross-discipline collaboration and putting together um, quality measurement teams that not only address the infection, infectious components, but the other components as well. So one of the reasons that we're um, supportive and, and, and think that looking more broadly at complications makes a, a great deal of difference is that it also makes it more evident that the approach needs to be more broad-based than it has been traditionally. I agree. I think that's really important. Every uh, specialty brings something different to the table, and when you put all that expertise together, I think it can have some very positive results. Hey, there's a model for it. It's called Tumor Board, right? <laughs> so the idea of bringing in this many different perspectives into one location. Yeah. yeah. Well, guys, um, we're getting up on our, near our time limit, and so I wanted to make sure there wasn't uh, any additional thoughts or, or comments that either of you wanted to make before we wrap things up. Uh, well, again, I just want to thank you for the opportunity and um, to thank Dr. Lilly for the chance to talk with him about this new approach um, and all of its challenges and opportunities. And I also just want to um, acknowledge how grateful we are to the working group organizations and members for um, all of their contributions to this effort because we certainly wouldn't be where we are today without um, their close collaboration and involvement, and um, we're just very grateful for that. Greg, any final thoughts? 
the, um, these new constructs really have a, provide the opportunity to look carefully at what complications are and what complications aren't. And so we think this is a really important step forward. We also think it's important not to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater because we believe that there are patients that are being saved that are, uh, whose lives are being saved today because ventilator-associated pneumonia is, in fact, effectively being uh, prevented by um, methods and procedures that are well-established and should be further um, you know, made more broadly available. So we're hoping uh, that we can both prevent the infectious complications and the non-infectious complications. Fantastic. Well, uh, Craig and Shelley, thanks so much for your time. This was, as expected, a terrific conversation. So I can't thank either of you enough. That was perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You guys thank have you, a great Carl. day. You have a great day.